Just a reminder before we start, please subscribe and review our show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners discover the show. Frankly, it makes us feel pretty good. All right, here's the show. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent, Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director, Rick Klein. Rick, I am coming to you from New York City, the United Nations General Assembly Week, and we had quite a debut for the new president of the United States. I mean, I guess he's not that new, but uh, first time here at the United Nations. What a speech. Elton John reference all included. Yeah, that, that that's something. It, look, I, I think you saw President Trump explain what it means to make America mm-hmm. great again, and that means reconceiving of how America thinks of its role in the world. So I think it was a new day for President Trump. Okay, and we've got a lot to talk about. I, I want to I get into that a bit. We want to go through some highlights, including some undercovered highlights of that 42-minute speech, uh, but also uh, a lot of political drama coming out of the state of Alabama this week. We've got a rally coming up tomorrow with Sarah Palin and Sebastian Gorka supporting uh, Judge Moore down in that Senate primary race. And then the next day, we'll see the president of the United States, Donald Trump, in Alabama campaigning for the other Republican in that primary runoff, Luther Strange. And we've got one last effort to try to get repeal and replace of Obamacare over the line. I want to hear your opinion, Rick, about whether or not that's going to pass. We'll do some predictions. We'll do some predictions at the end of the show. We're going to be hearing from uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, Chris Van Holland, the uh, chairman of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and somebody who I, I think is probably looking really, really with interest at that Alabama, deep red Alabama uh, primary. So we're going to be talking to uh, to Chris Van Hollen. And but we got to get we got to start with this speech. I mean, first of all, Rick, I've got to tell you, I, I didn't know what to expect because we really never know what to expect with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But when he came out into that hall, this is somebody who had basically declared last year that the United Nations is an adversary to America. Uh, as harsh a critic as we have ever seen land in the White House of the United Nations. And when I saw him come into that hall, first of all, he seemed remarkably comfortable behind that, you know, in front of that green marble that he had ridiculed that years he hates, ago as yeah. being cheap. Um, he seemed remarkably comfortable in the role. And for the first 15 minutes or so of that speech, he was substantive, he was serious, he was rather optimistic, he was talking about international cooperation, he was thanking our allies. And, you know, there was a, there was a time where I was wondering who I had tuned in to, to, to watch. And then North Korea came up. <laughs> and then North Korea. I think if you if you take out some of the Trumpisms, and I think you can put the Rocket Man line as part of that, it was actually a pretty conventional Republican speech to the United Nations. There was a lot in there that George W. Bush would would say. Mitt Romney came out and said it was a great speech. Mitt Romney said it was a great speech. Now he wouldn't have delivered it quite like Trump, but I I think this was a guy that a lot of people thought was an isolationist. Uh, he was very critical of foreign policy adventurism under Democrats and Republicans, and he came out with a pretty robust vision of, of where you'd potentially use a military force. He called out a whole bunch of rogue nations, uh, the Iranians and the Syrians and the North Koreans and the Cubans, the Venezuelans, and he challenged the United Nations to to kind of get on board the sentiment that isn't just an American sentiment right now, but is an international sentiment that's uh, working together for common ideals. It, it wasn't as radical as you might think. 
Yeah, and, and you know, he did say sovereignty a lot, which is a word you don't normally hear a, a U.S. president say at the United Nations. Uh, I think I think the count was 21 or so times. And what's interesting, Rick, I've been covering Donald Trump since, uh, well, since you were, in, I think, in like junior high school. Mm. And I don't think I've ever heard the guy say sovereignty before, but, but there it was 21 times talking about uh, American sovereignty. And he didn't shy away from his America first theme that he has hit over and over again. But he did put an interesting twist on it. Listen to this. As president of the United States, I will always put America first. Just like you, as the leaders of your countries, will always and should always put your countries first. Okay. Okay. So, Rick, that was... You heard applause there, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. It's almost like they didn't know what to do. And, they and, <laughs> and I want to be clear about something. For the vast majority of the speeches that are given there, there is no applause. I mean, there's occasionally some of that. But this is a very serious forum, a vast cavernous hall. There's 189 or so delegations, you know, sitting there. Uh, you know, the, the ambassadors or leaders, note takers. But you don't hear people applaud very often. So that was the one applause line. And and there I would take a little issue with you saying this seems like a rather conventional Republican president before the United Nations. I, I don't know. You know, traditionally you go and you talk about international cooperation and coming together and doing stuff in concert. It was fascinating to hear him come out with uh, America first, which might have rubbed some of those folks the wrong way. But they say, but I understand you guys are your countries first. And then within that, we can find a way to do things that are mutually beneficial. It was actually, I, I thought it was actually quite genius. And, and is the view from the White House, John, that this is something the president has given a lot of thought to? Or is this a imposition uh, of people around him, maybe Steve Miller among them, uh, maybe some echoes of Bannon than that, of, of a foreign policy for a guy that's basically been a blank, a blank slate? Well, did George Washington write the farewell address? <laughs> Sounds like a rhetorical question. <laughs> it was Alexander Hamilton, right? Uh, uh, but but George Washington decided that, that was the direction he wanted to go. Look, the, some of the language, that's why I refer to sovereignty. I mean, some of this did seem like something that, you know, he, he was reading something that didn't sound a lot like Donald Trump. Um, but then, you know, you get to you get to the section on North Korea, and I know there's been a lot of um, discussion of you know, not just the Rocket Man thing, and that's fine, but 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 the the amazing threat that was made. Now it's a conditional threat if we are forced to defend ourselves or our allies. But the idea of completely destroying an entire nation state mm. that is not something you normally hear uh, somebody say. So before we we get into that, let's because words matter. Let's listen to exactly what he said in the full context, not just the short little. You know, rocket man soundbite. Let's listen to the whole section. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. That's what the United Nations is for. Let's see how they do. 
Okay, so first of all, like I said, that really kind of I I I jumped out of my chair when I heard him say totally mm. destroy North Korea. But, right, because it's not just end the regime or destroy the, the destroy the leadership or regime it's change, destroy or the country. Yes. yes. So, but 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 before we get in, into that, I I can say that I covered the Bush administration dealing with North Korea as a as a foreign affairs correspondent for ABC News, and I certainly covered the Obama administration dealing with North Korea. These were two vastly different approaches in some ways to foreign policy, but. But administrations that were filled with some of the most experienced and respected foreign policy hands of our time, you know, the Colin Powells and the Condoleezza Rice's and the Hillary Clintons, and neither got North Korea right and have led us to where we are now. Now, this is a <laughs> this is a rather different approach. Um, but I and, and Chris Van Hollen is about to join us. I want to ask him about this. But I spoke over the weekend with a um, a uh, very senior member of the Obama foreign policy team that said one of the problems that we – one of the central problems that we have with North Korea is that the North Korean regime has been able to calculate and and determine that the United States truly has no military option. Um, and that is the conventional wisdom and that is certainly the, the, the lesson that, that, uh, that the North Koreans have taken and therefore they can move with, with all deliberateness – on their missile program and on their and on their nuclear programming, knowing that there really isn't anything we can do. We can go and try to do sanctions. How much more can you do in terms of sanctions on, on North Korea? But there really isn't a military option. So this top foreign policy uh, uh, national security official, former for the Obama administration, said something needs to be done to erase that perception. And this individual, uh, widely respected, uh, wasn't so dismissive of the approach mm. that, um, that Donald Trump has taken. With that, uh, and so much to talk about on the political front, uh, good friend of our podcast, Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, the chairman of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, joins us now. Senator Van Hollen, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you guys. So uh, we, we like a lot to get to on politics, but first, I, I wanted to get your sense on the speech particularly uh, on that uh, the, the, the rhetoric, uh, the incredible threat leveled by the president there at the General Assembly towards North Korea? So two things on that. First, I don't think that the name-calling and the overblown rhetoric uh, directed personally at the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, is useful at all. I think it actually serves to elevate uh, the North Korean dictator and diminishes the United States. I do believe that President Trump should follow Teddy Roosevelt's good advice, which is speak softly but carry a big stick. On the second issue, the United States has long said that if North Korea takes any kind of military action, uh, the United States will respond with overwhelming force. Uh, so to the point you were making, uh, I don't have concerns about that so long as it's clear that the United States would be initiating that force as a defensive uh, measure. I do think we still have a lot of room uh, in terms of tightening the sanctions. I mean, the UN has now passed several uh, sanctions, pieces of sanctions legislation. The Sanctions noose is really just beginning to tighten, and I do think the Trump administration should support 
uh, bipartisan legislation that I've introduced with Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania that would essentially uh, proposes an Iran sanctions type regime, secondary sanctions regime, but directed at North Korea. And the prime target there would be Chinese banks and financial firms uh, that continue uh, to be used as conduits uh, for financial dealings with North Korea. And until we get really serious about letting those Chinese banks and firms know that if they do business with North Korea, uh, they don't have access to our markets, uh, we're never going to have effective sanctions. So what is there a red line on the North Korean program, the nuclear program and the missile program? I mean, at what point, or do you believe we, there is a point where they have perfected uh, their, their, their missile technology or improved it to the, to the point where they can actually uh, reach, reach mainland of the United States, where they can marry a, a nuclear device uh, to a missile? Or is it uh, that, they're, that they're, they've been able to advance their nuclear program itself, that they could you know, put a nuclear device in a container ship and you know, send it into, uh, into Long Beach? Um, is, is there a point where you say that, that it's not that, that defending ourselves isn't really defending ourselves like it's an attack, but the ability of that country to attack us with devastating force? Well, it's, it's very risky to draw really clear red lines. Uh, obviously, an attack by North Korea on the United States or our allies is, a, is an obvious red line, sure. and we should make it clear we will respond with uh, overwhelming force. But we also do have the escalating threat uh, with the development of their ICBM uh, capability, as well as their nuclear weapons uh, capability, and trying to marry up the two, the nuclear warheads, to the missiles. And so I, I think that, as you said at the beginning, um, the risk of kind of any kind of preventative war, so taking action not as a defensive measure, but uh, in a preventative fashion, does put at risk um, you know, the 25,000 Americans in South Korea, but also millions of South Koreans and our Japanese allies and others. Th that does not mean that the administration should not continue to say that we will look at all options, right? I mean, there may be options out there. I don't know. But I do think drawing a clear red line uh, is, is dangerous in the sense that it really hems you in. Um, and the, the other risk, of course, is U.S. credibility if you draw a clear red line and then uh, do not act. So uh, this is obviously a, an incredibly difficult issue. I mean, North Korea, as you indicated, um, has obviously continue to develop nuclear weapons over many administrations, Democratic administrations and Republican administration, Republican administrations. And now they're, you know, perfecting their technologies. Uh, and so I don't think the, the overblown rhetoric is at all helpful. I do think additional sanctions backed with the secondary sanctions regime that uh, I talked about would be very useful. Uh, and then we need to work in concert with our allies, but, uh, Making it clear that we will respond to overwhelm with overwhelming force to an attack by North Korea, um, I don't have a problem with that. 
Senator, I want to ask about the big domestic issue right now, and that is the revival of the health care push. And you've been you've been calling it a zombie bill and kill the zombies. And I, I, but I want to ask you from a policy perspective, also a political perspective, because clearly the, Dem- the Democrats are going to be against this. It's just whether they get enough Republicans, whether they can get to that magic 50 before September 30th. What, to your mind, is the political fallout here? What's the Democratic messaging going to be if Graham Cassidy passes here under the wire and uh, the repeal and replace push actually gets results? Well, I think you've already seen a lot of political fallout, even without this uh, having taken effect. So, for example, in Nevada, uh, Senator Dean Heller has come under all sorts of fire, uh, in this case from all sides. Uh, for his positions uh, on the health care issue. Uh, and I think you're going to see that in other Senate and House races, uh, even if they didn't take the next step. If they actually were to take the next step and implement this latest version of Trump care, the Graham-Cassidy uh, bill, uh, I, I think it's going to be it's, it's the wrong thing to do for the country. It's going to totally screw up our health care system. Uh, And I think people uh, in all the states will begin to really feel the negative impacts uh, right away. Uh, So I really hope they don't proceed. If they do, I think uh, they will uh, not only hurt lots of Americans, but I think, you know, politically, uh, they're going to have to be held accountable. Do you plan to support the single payer bill that was filed uh, last week by by Senator Sanders? I know you said you'd take a look at it. And do you feel like that is something that Democrats should coalesce around to say, look, this is the vision that we have to offer as an alternative. It is a it is a clear, crisp, bold vision. This is what we're behind. So I welcome lots of ideas that are going to be uh, presented uh, as to how we further improve our health care system. We all know that the Affordable Care Act expanded access to affordable care for tens of millions of Americans. But we also know uh, we have a lot of work still to do to bring down costs and premiums in our health care system and get to the goal of universal coverage. So uh, I salute Senator Sanders for putting one idea on the table for getting to universal coverage. Uh, I think there are going to be other proposals. Uh, there are obviously issues of cost that need to be uh, addressed. So I welcome the debate. I do think our focus right now, and I think Senator Sanders has made this clear, is to you know prevent President Trump and the Republicans from blowing up uh, the Affordable Care Act and and taking us backwards. Uh, And then we should have this uh, debate about how we move forward uh, in 2018 and beyond. So I want to switch to this rather extraordinary Republican primary that I'm sure you're watching with some sense of glee down in in Alabama uh, with with, with Judge Roy Moore, um, who was twice elected to the Supreme Court down there and twice thrown off. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, of course, Luther Strange, uh, appointed by a, a very unpopular governor um, to, to fill out Jeff Sessions' term. And they are, they are locked in this battle. Donald Trump is going down to campaign for Strange. Sarah Palin is going down uh, to campaign for, for Roy Moore. Uh, tell me about your candidate. This is about as deep or red a state as you can get. Do, do you tell me about your candidate down there? Do you do you see an opportunity uh, for for Democrats to actually play down in, in Alabama? Well, we have a terrific candidate, uh, a former U.S. Attorney uh, Doug Jones, uh, who brought the successful case prosecuting the 
KKK uh, for uh, the 16th Street uh, bombing uh, in Birmingham, where you had four little girls uh, who were killed. Uh, and he is somebody who is, you know, connected to uh, Alabama. And as you indicated, you've got Republicans uh, who are uh, firing at one another. They did in, in the earlier round one with uh, Mo Brooks, Congressman Mo Brooks, when he was still in the race. Uh, he, of course, has uh, endorsed, I believe, Roy Moore. Uh, and so you have a full-blown sort of Republican civil political war uh, going on there. This is a special election. As you know, the date is on December 12th. Uh, and so we believe Doug Jones uh, is connecting very well uh, to uh, people from all different political persuasions in Alabama. They do not want uh, a senator uh, who cannot deliver for Alabama uh, on the issues. And they don't want somebody who's considered so out there and so extreme uh, that, uh, you know, they, they cannot be effective. Um, are you going to be competing in Alabama? Alabama? Are you going to be spending money? Uh, are you going to be well, uh, spending I've already, in, in, I've already in Alabama? given a very sizable contribution, uh, and I will continue to be supporting them. We are encouraging all of our members uh, to strongly support uh, Doug Jones, and we'll be looking at all our options uh, in, in Alabama uh, because this is a special election, and as we all know, uh, turnout is everything uh, in a special election. And I think Doug Jones is uh, going to uh, energize a lot of voters uh, to come out. And I'm not sure after a bitter Republican primary whether that will be the case on the Republican side. Do you reassess based on who wins? I mean, if Roy Moore wins, as, as John mentioned, this is a guy that uh, has been a very polarizing figure in Alabama. Uh, do you say, okay, now we've got more of an opportunity here than going against the incumbent senator in Luther Strange? Well, I think, I mean, Luther Strange has had a, a, a lot of powerful negatives uh, thrown at him by uh, Roy Moore. I mean, Roy Moore has run lots of, um, uh, has, has really hit him hard on a whole lot of uh, issues. Uh, and so, you know, regardless of the outcome in the, in the Republican uh, race, we have a very strong candidate. Uh, we all know it's Alabama. Uh, that's been tough territory for Democrats, and no one's kidding themselves about uh, how tough uh, politically Alabama has been. On the other hand, uh, we have a, a terrific candidate uh, who's connected uh, to people in Alabama, and Republicans have uh, just gone through months of uh, beating the hell out of each other. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is uh, uh, this map. I, I, we, Rick and I were talking before the show. You, you took this job as the, uh, as, as the chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Uh, did, did you get a chance to look at the map before you? Uh, they you, fool you? you, you did they you trick you? <laughs> Are you suggesting I need to have my head checked? You see, the good news is I know that everybody who who follows politics closely, like you guys, knows how tough it is. Yeah, right? I mean, we've so got we're, we're, we're counting on the people who know how tough it is. But listen, I mean, as as tough a map as we have, and you know, for those who haven't you know followed this, we have one-third of the senators up, 33 senators up, and 25 are members of the Democratic uh, caucus. And, you know, 10 of those members are from states that Donald Trump uh, won versus only one Republican senator is up from a state that Hillary Clinton carried. So, yes, it is a very tough map. That being said, uh, we are seeing uh, Democrats energized more than ever before, and our 
our challenge is to translate that energy into people showing up at the polls. And increasingly, we see independents and moderate Republicans uh, just fed up with the direction that uh, both the Trump administration and this Republican Congress uh, have taken. And so we also believe, uh, in addition to our incumbent members uh, being able to hold their ground, uh, we believe we have some uh, pickup opportunities as well. So uh, obviously, given the map, um, we've got a lot of defense and holding to do, but we also have some opportunities out there. In that okay. context, but in the, in, the, in the interest of getting Democrats engaged in this, do you, do, you, do you shudder just a little bit when you see Chuck and Nancy at the White House and talk about deals beyond the spending deal, maybe a deal in immigration to put stock on the table, there's some blowback there. Do you feel like Democrats are you know, well served right now in pursuing any kind of deals with President Trump? Well, if we put an idea forward that's a idea rooted in Democratic values and the Democratic position, and you know Donald Trump says yes, uh, I think we, we take it. I mean, if we can make sure we make uh, get the Dreamers uh, law enacted and provide permanency, uh, that's, that's a good thing. Um, on other issues, we've put forward really clear principles about what uh, we we need to see happen uh, in order to get uh, Democratic support. So, for example, on uh, tax reform, we've been really clear tax reform cannot just be some Trojan horse for tax cuts for the rich. Uh, we laid out principles, no net tax breaks for the top 1%. It needs to be there, help middle-income Americans. We can't blow up the deficit. we got to go through the regular order. So, so long as we define our principles clearly, which we have, um, then if uh, President Trump wants to support uh, that proposal, uh, which we believe helps would help Americans, uh, we would do that. I will also say that our, our senators uh, have been very clear that where you know, the Trump administration is pursuing policies that hurt their states, they will fight them tooth and nail. Uh, but if it's a proposal uh, that they've put forward or others have put forward that will help their states, uh, they'll they'll work to make sure that the people of their states get the best deal. All right, Senator Chris Van Hollen, thank you for joining us. Before you go, just give us your prediction. Where are you going to you look? At, we know where the map is. Republicans have a two seat majority right now. What will the Republican majority look like uh, at, at the, at, after the next uh, midterms? Or do you think Democrats could somehow play to that inside straight and retake the Senate. <laughs> All right, guys. Listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fight like hell to hold the blue wall in the United States Senate, and people are recognizing more and more how important that is because, you know, Trump keeps tweeting about how they need to change the rules around here. And so I think people have an even better understanding of how important it is to uh, at least hold our wall. And then we will look for those uh, additional opportunities to, as you say, draw to an inside straight. Uh, we have opportunities that are out there. We are, have some good candidates already running. We're going to have more candidates uh, announcing to, in these challenger races. Uh, so we're just going to fight like hell. These I, campaign chairman, they never give numbers. I know. It's un- I know. God, it's worse than you, <laughs> right? Commu- I, it's unbelievable. Really? Uh, okay. What, have you guys put numbers out there? Uh, you know, every <laughs> once in a while. Keep it up, Howard. Uh, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll have this conversation again in about a, uh, let's see, a, a year. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Deal. All right. Senator Van Hollen, thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Good Take to be care. with you. Uh, so, Rick, I mean, they're not going to win back the Senate, so, right? 
Well, yeah. you said it now, so yeah. there it is. Okay. We'll replay that sound when we need to. I, they, I, if they win in Alabama, they yeah, win in I mean, Nevada. Need, now, 50 50 is not winning. You got to win another seat because you had the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, casting the tie. Where, 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 where's the next uh, pickup? It's, it, uh, it's a brutal map. I mean, yeah. you, you, right now, it's Nevada and Arizona are the top two. The yeah. Number three on most lists is Texas. So okay. that tells you how slim pickings <laughs> it is, that they've got to beat Ted Cruz in Texas to, to, to pick that up. But look, if if the Alabama thing gets, gets some traction and uh, we've seen Democrats disappointed in the special elections for the House races, they've fallen short in all of those. Uh, it was a very disappointing special election year for them. They're hoping some momentum, though, maybe out of Alabama. That's really a long shot. Virginia governor changes it. But uh, it's it's tough. Like you said, there's a reason Van Allen's a freshman. He gets this big job. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, so uh, we have one more bit of sound uh, coming back to the Graham Cassidy. Yeah. This last ditch effort to try to, you know, for Republicans to 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 repeal and replace before their magic reconciliation expires on September 30th. And our Ali Rogan, uh, the ever talented Ali Rogan, caught up with Susan Collins, who was quite instrumental in tanking the last two efforts to get this done. <laughs> uh, let's get a sense of where she is on this latest. I have a lot of concerns about the bill. From the initial analysis that I've done, it would mean a billion dollars less for the state of Maine for Medicaid and other federal health care spending. We have a situation in Maine where if you take out our largest hospitals, the rest of the hospitals in aggregate lost $50 million last year. So you really jeopardize the very existence of those hospitals, particularly in rural Maine, but throughout our state. I'm also concerned that the bill does not afford automatic protections to people with pre-existing conditions. They would be sold insurance, but that insurance might well be unaffordable. So those are just two of the concerns that I have. Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't sound like a billion dollar shortfall from Maine. Is, uh, it is sounds like a to... hard hard path to yes. <laughs> <laughs> you start there. So uh, you, but you you seem to think that Rand Paul's going to come around on this. Uh, listen, I I, I do. I, I, mean, I come I, on, man. I think right now. So let me just back up a second. This is a weird. This is deja vu. You mentioned the, the how, deja vu again. Deja vu all over again. <laughs> Susan Collins. This is time three for her. It's also time three for the CBO and essential health benefits and all of the, you know, the heart association, the medical association, the doctor association, AARP, they're all coming out against it. And it's, you know, Mike Pence is the closer all over again. And John McCain's going to be important all over again. And, Oh, Jimmy Kimmel and the Jimmy Kimmel test. He's back railing against it. It, it seems like a replay and you think, well, it's going to have the same conclusion, but there's a couple of different factors here. One is the September 30th deadline and the, the, the fallout from not getting this done. And the idea that just getting something done is better than nothing. Uh, a second, Second uh, factor right now, to my mind, a very big one is John McCain and his friendship with Lindsey Graham. Graham Cassidy, that means something. Uh, so, look, they, they were they were within a vote last time. Very famously, John McCain's thumb goes down uh, in, instead of up, and that 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 puts it in a position where it fails. I think if you have the exact same math as last time, even with Murkowski and Collins as a no, that leaves Rand Paul as the key person, as the guy that controls this. And will he want to say that he gave up on the last best shot to say that you repealed and replaced Obamacare? 
I find a hard time seeing that happen. We're already seeing President Trump turn up the Twitter heat on him. I feel like the pressure is going to intensify, including from outside groups over the ensuing week. They're going to have the hearing. It feels like things are lined up for this to actually leave the station and pass the United States Senate. Okay, so Rick Klein is predicting that A, it will pass, and B, that Rand Paul will be the 50th vote. Yep. So I will say I think that I think that they can pull it over. The, I, I agree. I think it can pass. Um, I'm not willing to go over 50% on that at this point. But I think I think that they can pull this off. But I will. Uh, so wait. So you think that you think there's okay, more wait, than fifty percent? Okay. Wait. Wait a minute. Well, can, can I please the, please don't interrupt? Okay, please don't interrupt. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but I but I think that the deciding vote will be Murkowski. Um, that that if she votes yes, it will pass. I do not believe Rand Paul will vote yes on this bill. If it comes down to Rand Paul, this will fail. So that's my prediction, Rick. Right, uh, uh, take that. Um, take that to the bank. Right. right and and, and before have we go, I, I just um, wanted to make sure our our listeners know because we, we 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 didn't discuss this before about your tremendous collapse in the fantasy baseball uh league uh this this season which uh which was really i mean you had one of the best teams all during the regular season and and somehow you managed to uh, uh to choke when it came playoff time and i i don't know what happened to you rick but um but anyway, I, I just want to say you did. You were a, you were a great regular season. I made the playoffs. I mean, no, no, I made no. the playoffs. You I'm were just saying you were a great amazing. regular season team, and and uh, and I just I just uh, did you make the playoffs? I can't remember what happened to you, if you guys because you what how'd you do in the playoffs? How'd, I I I think I just missed. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. It was. I, just, it was. I'm is not it possible? Lie. I think I actually might have had the the actual worst record in the entire thing. <laughs> it was something like that. Something like yeah, that. Yeah. Well, they say you know maybe next year. Yeah, maybe so next, next year, year. Maybe next year. Now we're focusing on the Nationals. All right, that is it for Powerhouse Politics. A special thanks uh, to our team here: Dave Rind in New York, Avery Miller in Washington D.C., and the legions and legions of supporters, especially Rick Klein's entourage. Uh, we, we, we thank all for, uh, for making this podcast possible. Check us out on iTunes. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Do all of that stuff. And we'll catch you next week. Yeah.